Hi everyone, welcome to the first episode of the Trailblazers podcast series, a series that tells the stories of influential women in tech, one story at a time. Hi, my name is Marissa. Hi, my name is Kylie. And today our first conversation is with Catherine Courage, the VP of User Experience at Google. A Newfoundland native, Catherine began her journey studying psychology at the Memorial University of Newfoundland. Previously, the Director of User Experience at Salesforce and SVP of Customer Experience at Citrix, Catherine today is a Fortune 500 board director and leads a 600-person organization under Google's commerce and ads product areas. In this episode, we dig into Catherine's background in psychology, UX at Google, her best tips for aspiring designers, and what she's learned through leading a 600-person organization at Google. If you're curious about design or want to learn from the experiences of a Google VP, I guarantee you'll have something to learn from Catherine's inspiring journey into tech. Hi, Catherine. It's lovely to meet you. I'm Carly. And a great place to start, which just to learn a lot more about your background, as a UX designer myself, I've come to learn that a lot of UX designers come from many different walks of life. And having studied psychology, how has, some might say, a degree unconventional to the design field help you lead a UX team focusing on commerce and ads? Yeah, it's a, it's a great question. So I would say when I did my undergraduate degree, uh, when I first thought about what I wanted to do in university and college, I really wasn't certain. And that, that gave me a lot of pressure and angst. And my mother gave me the very wise advice of just do something you love. Don't do what you think you need to do. Do the, the study in the areas that you're really enjoying. And that turned out to be the area of psychology for me. What I loved was the study of human behavior. And I really went deep on the experimental side. And then as I was coming close to graduating, I was really glad that I had done that because I enjoyed all I had learned. But then I had this new sense of angst of, okay, now what, now what, you know, what am I going to do with this degree? Uh, and knew that I wanted to go off and do a master's degree. I didn't think I wanted to do clinical psychology. And that's the typical thing that people think of when they think of a career that's psychology based. And truly, I literally went to the career uh, office and started opening books and reading about different kinds of career paths and came across the field of human factors. And I thought this is really interesting because it's the combination of two things that I love, my study, my background of human behavior, and then how you use your understanding of human behavior to design products. And I thought, how had I never heard of this field before? So truly, it was going to the career uh, office that sent me down this path. And then, uh, you know, applied to a number of schools, decided to go off to University of Toronto, where I studied uh, as part of their industrial engineering program, a focus on human factors. It's very fortunate that when I graduated, it was the first tech boom. And uh, I, even though I had a job lined up in Toronto and planned to stay there, my focus had been on on driving behavior, um, there was something that lured me out to the call of San Francisco. And I had done a few classes in human-computer interaction. I enjoyed them, but I never thought I would work in tech. Tech actually intimidated me a little bit. But I just thought, you know what? If I don't like it, Toronto's always there. I can come back. And like, why not give it a shot? What do I have to lose? And so the, the rest is history. And now you fast forward, here we are in 2019. And 
there are so many specialized programs um, that are very targeted toward HCI and psychology paths that lead you towards um, the study of design of products. So it's the the landscape has changed dramatically. For sure. And sometimes like when I'm personally browsing how much more there is learning for US designers now to get formal training in understanding psychology, it really blows my mind. Talking about ads. You know, when we usually think about ads, we think of the construction of an ad and how that box on the side of the screen is communicating a value proposition to you and not so much about the human interaction or the user experience surrounding the ads. What does user experience of ads look like to you and how does that communicate value to users and businesses? It's a uh, an interesting um, challenge that we, we work on here at Google, especially as user experience professionals. And this is what I love about working in the enterprise and the business space. You've got to create something that's going to create value for your customers, your business users, but you also need to create value for your end users. And sometimes those things can be attention. So how do you find the right balance of those things? And I think Google's secret sauce over the years, especially with the, the ad space, it has been trying to add value. You know, so if you search for something like a four-man tent, you you may get uh, a response back that says an ad from REI. Well, REI is a very reasonable place that I may want to buy uh, a four-person tent. So the ad is actually pro- providing utility and value. And so it was getting away of the old formats of ads, which were very much you know banners and blinking and things that were not irrelevant, to giving you something that's contextually relevant. So that's what we continue to do across the ads ecosystem. It's even more important today that people understand why ads are being served to them, that they have options to determine what is served to them and what is not served to them. So that's a big change that we've seen in the landscape over the last couple of years. And I think it's great that Google is really dedicated to transparency and making sure that users understand what's going on as well. I think that, I think you kind of touched on this and just how you ended that, you know, having your users understand the value of the ads themselves and I always wonder, like, what drives you to advocate for the user experience of commerce and ads? I just love being tied to things that are driven, uh, that are tied to the business. I've always worked in the enterprise space. I keep saying that I'm going to go over to uh, consumer, core consumer, and somehow enterprise keeps drawing me back. And I think it's because of that unique, complex challenge of trying to satisfy both. I think that ads can provide a real utility and can provide real value to end users. And that's the line that we need to continue to draw. And I think user experience is just critical in that, in understanding how people perceive ads. We do these great detailed studies of what makes an ad annoying. Uh, You know, these very subtle things. We don't want to just put things up there and have them in people's viewpoint. We want to have things that truly provide value. So being able to push on that with our PM and Eng counterparts and make sure that we all together value both the user and the business user uh, is, is just to me a really interesting proposition. Something we also wanted to draw on, having such a substantial role in um, design at Google and also having done a lot of UX leadership or UX management research yourself. Something that fascinates us is that you, you're you managing essentially young designers who look at their work on a day-to-day basis and then UX managers who could be working on these long-term projects while also managing the ex- expectations of the directors that you work with and then mm-hmm. also across multiple product areas. So this map where this graph starts getting really, really complex, at least when we try to map it out. So Mm -hmm. for you, having sort of juggling all these sort of expectations and requirements and responsibilities, how do you make sure that all your different teams that you're working with are marching at the same pace? 
It's hard is the short answer, uh, but I consider that a core part of, of my role. So I'm really glad you, you asked this question. One of the biggest failings, I think, especially young leaders learn uh, as they're growing through the ranks is they want to try and do everything. And that might work when you're a manager of, of five people and through osmosis, you understand all the communications and everything that's happening. As you scale to lead teams of 20 people, 100 people, 200 people, you know, now our org is, a, is about 600 people. You just cannot know everything and it's not your job to know everything. So your focus very much changes. You need to have a very strong leadership bench that you trust implicitly both ways. Uh, I trust that they will raise their hand to let me know if there's something going going on that I need to, to jump into. They trust me in terms of they know I have their back and I know I will give visibility to the most important projects that are going on. And we work really closely together to understand what are the most important initiatives in Sure that we are working on those. And then I stay very close to the smallest set of those. Those would be the ones that I'm tracking on a very, very regular basis. The other ones are, again, things that will be raised to me. So it means on an average day, there are lots of things that I have no idea that are happening. And you have to get comfortable with that because it's not your job to know everything that's going on at every level. You just can't scale that way. So, and you always need to go back and do a check in again. Like, okay, these are the things that I think are the most important. Are they still the most important? Because another dangerous thing that people can do is assume that the five things they focused on this year in the first half of the year are the same most important things for the second half of the year. You can pick whatever time duration. But in fact, priorities have shifted, whether it's the business or the user needs. And you have to be able to keep up with that. So it's constantly you know, doing a recheck to ensure that you're focused on those, those key things. And then just trusting that your team is going to alert you if there are any fire drills that you need to be aware of. Yeah, it's definitely that complicated to it having that trust there and also making sure that you can oversee as much as you can or whatever you hold yourself accountable to. And there's no doubt that leading a global team of hundreds of people across various revenue driving products is a huge responsibility. As you manage the UX process of all these different product areas, how do you overcome those instances of creative blocks and or instances of burnout? Because it is no small task. Yeah, it goes back to what we were talking about a little bit earlier is focus. You know, sometimes you go back into the mode of, oh, wait, I don't know what's going on in that project. And I need to go to that meeting. And I, you know, I have a small joke that, you know, when you're early in your career, people have FOMO, fear of missing out. When you're later in your career, it's more of fear of being included. It's like, I can't, you just can't do everything. So you get a lot of asks and it means you, you need to, I don't like the answer of you say no to things, but it's you empower other people to do that on your behalf. Like if it's important work and I can't do it, then my job is to find someone who can and be engaged and, and oversee it. So that's really the important um, juggling task that you, you have on a regular basis. I really like that you sort of give off this confidence that you seem very comfortable with trusting yourself and accepting that you don't know everything. It really touches on a specific quotation that stuck out to us, at least in one of your Medium articles, where you say, seniority doesn't correlate with confidence. Mm-hmm. You won't always know the path that other people walk. The discussion that always comes up is, imposter syndrome and that because we don't know everything <laughs> um, oftentimes it's really hard to do anything or we feel like we don't know anything and so we really admire that you have been able to sort of find comfort in accepting that you can trust your leaders that you're working with you can trust yourself that you have so much left to learn right. and having achieved the success that you have to date I think it'd be really interesting to 
share with our community how you've sort of come to this place where you've been able to recognize instances of imposter syndrome and then overcome it. Yeah. Um, so one of my favorite quotes is growth and comfort don't coexist. And so if you're someone who has a growth mindset and you want to continually learn uh, and have breadth and greater depth and learn new skills and oversee different areas, you have to fully expect that you are constantly going to have imposter syndrome. Every time I make a significant change or I take on something new or you get handed a special project, very often you're like, oh my gosh, uh, I really know very little about this area, but you have to have confidence in your abilities. How many times have you taken on these new things and had that same feeling, but you always figure it out. So it's it's noticing the repeat pattern of this happens all the time. I always have the feeling of panic, but then you settle in, you get to know the players, you understand what needs to be done. And then you, you forget that you even had that feeling of insecurity at all. So it's truly just getting to a place where you anticipate and know that as you take on these big new challenges, whether it's a new job or a big project, that you will have that moment in time where you do feel like, why was this handed to me? I know nothing about this. Um, there's so, Why didn't they give it to someone else? I'm not qualified. And someone gave it to you for a reason, because they believed in you. So you have to know immediately out of the gate, there is whoever hanging to do that project or that job, they have your back. They believe you can do this. So if you're having those doubts, I mean, you you work with this person to go, here's what I'm thinking, you know, uh, and you, you get kind of ways to reinforce and check in that you're going down the right path. And thank you so much for that. I think our community will really appreciate that advice. And sort of to bring this interview full circle, like you mentioned in the first question where we asked about how you came across design in a career center. Um, I think what we find so interesting, having reached out to and learned from a lot of inspiring female tech leaders such as yourself, it seems as though um, it's common that as much as we plan and set our expect set our career path to follow this one singular line, it often becomes a series of twists and turns. For a scene from your career path or in many other tech, female tech leaders' career paths, it, it does seem like that is the case oftentimes. And so what advice can you share to young designers who have this misconception that their career plan, their career path will have to follow a straight line? Um, what advice do you have to them so that they are better equipped to face that journey and any twists and turns that come along with it? I believe that... It's always important to think about where you want to go and what you might want to achieve, but to have flexibility in, in that vision. I think sometimes people can get so focused on the linear that they miss these growth opportunities that are on the sides. And so to always be open-minded in terms of different opportunities that might come your way. A great way that I always got exposure to those as I was going through my career was many of the cross-functional committees or groups that would come up when I was at different companies. I'd usually be the first one to raise my hand and say, that sounds interesting. I'd like to get involved. And it may have been the project that uh, initially spurred me. But then as I started to do this throughout my career, I realized, yes, I get to work on an, an interesting project outside my day-to-day 
But secondly, you then build these relationships across the company. You get to meet people in different roles or different departments that you wouldn't necessarily uh, work in. It gets you exposure to different things that maybe you're interested in that you might not have had considered. So that's always been incredibly valuable for me. And I think it's really allowed me to open my eyes to, to other possibilities. The other thing that I would say is that often young uh, UX professionals come out and they're very focused on their craft, whether it's the craft of user research or visual design or interaction design. And absolutely, that is critical. You need to really hone your craft. But then there's so many other skills you need in order to be successful. Collaboration, no great design comes to life on its own. You need someone to build it. You need someone to build a business case behind it. You you need to be able to work with a set of peers. You need to be able to influence because the project manager, product manager may be concerned about budget and you may be concerned about this perfect design and why. And so being able to collaborate and, and influence is a really, really important thing. And the last thing I would say is storytelling is so, so important. You can't just hand over mocks and expect someone to implement your vision. It's like, what is the story behind this? And why does it matter? What's the benefit it's going to bring to the user? What's the benefit that it's going to bring to the business? Don't assume that people just naturally get that. It may all be inside your head, but you need to find a way to tell a really compelling story. And so often when I see UX people do that, that's when PM or Eng or you know executives light up and go, we need to do that. So it's not just about the craft, but it's about many of these other skills that will help you bring your craft to life. Definitely. Thank you so much for those three amazing pieces of advice. Um, we'll, we'll be really excited to share that with our listeners in our community. Um, and just to tie up the interview or mm-hmm. wrap it up. So we'd like to ask this sort of signature closing question, which is, um, are SheHawks and the Women in Technology Society really prides itself in being a community of women who champion each other, cheer for each other, and make sure we we support each other. So is there a certain mentor um, that you'd like to shout out who has been pivotal to your career or even just um, who, you, who you've become today? Yeah, I absolutely think two come to mind, two categories. One is family. Um, I, my mother worked, it was a working mother. She went to school. Um, you know, she, I have two older brothers. There were three kids and she, I didn't realize it at all. Now that I look at her as being Wonder Woman, I didn't see it at the time. She just managed to do it all. And I thought that's, well, that's what everybody does. Uh, and so she's been a real role model. She also had um, three sisters who were all professionals as as well. So there, it was just this role model of these very strong women with strong careers. I grew up in that environment and I felt there was nothing I, I couldn't do. I was always treated very much as an equal to my, my two brothers. So I think that set a very strong foundation in me from a very early age. Once I got into the working um, field, you know, someone who was super important to me was actually a sponsor um, it was a gentleman, Al Montserrat, that I worked with at Citrix, and he just saw potential in me and he opened many doors for me. And that's what a sponsor does as compared to a mentor. He would invite me into meetings. He would engage me in projects. Uh, and someone opening the door is really, really important. And he just trusted me and saw that, you know, this person seems bright and engaged and I'm going to give her a chance. Um and it was thanks to him that ultimately the design role at Citrix ended up reporting to the, the CEO, which was just a huge opportunity that I never, ever envisioned. So the, the, the combination of mentorship and sponsorship is a really powerful combination. 
Yeah, definitely. We always try to build that community of women who um, make sure they have other inspirational figures to look up to and Mm -hmm. reassure them that. Yeah. And and it was great, uh, you know, at Citrix to have uh, a male who was actually my sponsor, which was really nice. Uh, You know, I I think sometimes we're always looking for a female role model, but it should be that it shouldn't be gender. That's necessarily the defining trait. It should be who do I want to um, who do I see as a really good role model? Who's someone who I really want to learn from their behaviors? And regardless of, of gender, I think that's what you want to look for in a, in a mentor or sponsor. Definitely. Thank you so much for those incredible answers. Great. Good chat with you.